Hello and welcome, friends, to another edition of Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mogg, here on your community radio station. We are Forward Radio WFMP, broadcasting at 106.5 FM from here in the historic Hayburn Building and live streaming to the world at forwardradio.org. If you're not there now, we encourage you to go there and become a part of our community radio station. This is radio for the people, by the people. That means you, 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 my friends, can get behind these microphones or even better, get behind the scenes, help us keep the station running. It takes all kinds of volunteer power to keep us on the air. And it also takes your listener contributions. It's the season of giving, my friends. Why don't you put a little something under the tree for Forward Radio? You know, it only took $20 a day to keep this amazing community treasure going. What a steal. You could sponsor an entire day's broadcast for just 20 bucks. Uh, so go to forwardradio.org and chip in whatever you can in this season of giving. Well, my name is Justin Mogg, and what we do here on Sustainability now each week as we bring in interesting folks from around the community to talk about sustainability and i am really excited to have ryan van velzer back in the studio with me welcome back ryan hey thanks for having me i think it's been a couple years since we had a chance to talk ryan is uh, for coming up on four years now serving as wfpl's energy and environment reporter so usually you can hear him on wfpl and uh, we encourage you to go to wfpl.org to check out some of his work. Uh, there's great articles there that we're going to be referencing today. And you can follow Ryan uh, on the socials at Ryan Van Velzer, and that's R-Y-A-N-V-A-N-V-E-L. Z E R. It's a it, like you said. Your name is your brand, right? So people need to know this name. <laughs> that is correct. <laughs> so Ryan and I had a like an amazing hour and a half long conversation recently, uh, uh, sort of on background about the series he's working on about corporate responsibility in the age of climate change. Right, Ryan? That is a good way to put it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Here's I mean here's the thing that I'm thinking about right now in the wake of um uh, you know the, the 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 recent climate summit and the recent yeah. ipcc reports um i think we're seeing a large number of companies and corporations finally begin to set deadlines on when they're going to be carbon neutral or when they're going to you know be net zero when they're going to start um you know making these uh, real reductions uh and the questions that remain are you know first what are these targets are these mm. targets meaningful and then the second question is you know what are you doing to achieve these targets or is this just another way to deflect accountability yeah yeah and i have heard some really good critiques recently about uh and, and it's it hits home because i'm someone who does carbon accounting for the university of louisville right but some critiques about this whole way of thinking about the climate crisis some people consider it to be a colonized mindset uh, or, or an overly uh, capitalist mindset where we're trying to, as a corporation or an institution, we're trying to track the numbers and, and make a commitment and then reduce our emissions to meet that commitment or offset those emissions. But if we do so in a way that um, is not responsible all around, it's not socially responsible, right? Uh, or continues to facilitate an unsustainable economy, well, then we're not really solving the crisis, are we? So this gets complicated real quick. <laughs> yeah, that, that does get complicated really quick. I hadn't really considered it in those terms, but I'm curious to know more about that. Um, you know, uh, I guess my first thought is, is that, you know, 
for better or worse, we have to work within the system that we have. Right. And, and that off, especially as a journalist, that means for me looking at, um, uh, government, capitalism, you know, systems of economics, uh, corporations, and saying, here's what the playing field is. How can we get to where we need to be? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I guess that's what some of the criticism is, is related to um, uh, there's a lot of concern about land grabs that might come as a result of attempting to offset our emissions. So the whole field of carbon offsets has been really murky for a long time. Uh, and I, I guess part of the problem is that there's certainly no global system. There's not even a national system here in the U.S. for carbon accounting, really, and for offsetting our emissions. There are things like in California has a system. Uh, but this whole idea of cap and trade, uh, really, if it's done without any consideration for uh, whose land is being stolen, uh, whose forests uh, are, are being monetized, th those kinds of concerns, um, then we're, we're really not getting to the whole sustainability question. But th th I mean, this is bringing up huge, big, uh, thorny issues that probably most corporations are not capable of really addressing, right? You know, are you, on the land grab question, the yeah. thing that's coming coming <laughs> to my mind is we're seeing this actually play out right now in Kentucky, and we're going to see it play out in the next legislative session. In Kentucky, uh, over the last two years, 28 or 29 different companies have filed uh, to build utility-scale solar right. in Kentucky. Right. Uh, and already, I think 13 or 14 of these sites have been approved. Some are on, like, you know, former uh, coal abandoned coal mine sites. Uh, others are just uh, on agricultural properties. And you see uh, Kentucky residents are genuinely concerned about that. And I think that's kind of like in, in line with what you're talking about, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It, it gets into the thorny issues of how we do the transition away from fossil fuels in an ethical manner without creating more spinoff problems that we hadn't really been thinking about. And it's tough as the climate crisis gets more and more extreme and we feel the pressure to act urgently, right? And and I think corporations, as you mentioned at the top, are starting to feel that a little bit. Uh, maybe there's an existential crisis in the minds of some corporate leaders. I don't know. Uh, but that urgency to act tends to make us be a little sloppy, right? And for example, well, let's just put up solar panels wherever we can. Right. Or wherever we can do it affordably. And that might end up being some environmentally sensitive lands. Right. Uh, it might end up being a, a valuable resource. It might be stolen land. Right. Uh, so all these questions come up uh, in our in our investigations. And so I'm, I'm glad you you brought it right home to Kentucky instead of just thinking about like, I don't know, stealing indigenous lands in, in Amazonia or something like that. Um, but let's talk about your, your December 8th story that just came out about um, Kentucky bourbon makers plan for the future under climate change. Tell us about who you looked into and what you found. Uh, you know, several months ago, I had uh, Brown Foreman uh, reach out to me. Um, it was just, you know, journalists often get these emails that are press releases that right. say, and, I, you know, I get a lot of them that say, these are our new corporate sustainability goals. And oftentimes, you know, I, I've got other things going on. I haven't been 
uh, I don't usually um, engage with those kinds of stories. Uh, I mean, they're, they're all important. It's important that co corporations set these goals. I've just got other things going on. But, I, you know, I started thinking about it more. And first of all, you know, after four years of being in Louisville, I came to understand how much uh, of a role that Brown Foreman itself plays in Louisville. I mean, yeah. it's, a, it's a huge business here, both has a cultural impact and has a huge economic impact. So that said something to me that, OK, they're they're revising their sustainability goals. Maybe that's something important that I should be thinking about. And then, uh, as I said at the top there, you know, I'm thinking, okay, you're seeing a lot more corporations do this. Uh, maybe it's time that we I should be engaging with this as, as a journalist and other journalists across the country should be engaging deeply with these climate plans to say, okay, what are you doing? Is it enough? How are you going to meet those goals? Mm -hmm. So I decided to uh, go and look deeply into this issue with Brown Foreman, and they were gracious enough to let me go out to their Shively campus, um, walk around a little bit, and talk with their chief sustainability officer, Alex Alvarez. Aha. So, okay. So they have someone like me then who's like in charge of coming to the institution every day, think about thinking about ways to make it more sustainable. Um, I imagine that he's in a similar position to me. Like there's way too much to do <laughs> for one person. So many opportunities. It's almost hard to prioritize. Right. Um, but what, what does their sustainability plan or goals uh, look like? And in, in releasing them, did they reference the COP26 or the larger sort of global moment? Yeah, you know, one of the things that they, uh, you know, definitely uh, referenced was the need to um, keep global warming under 1.5 degrees Celsius. Okay. Um, and you've seen that change over just the last few years. Uh, I, you know, back in 2017, I was looking at a different climate plan for a different company and they were still referencing two degrees celsius and you wow. can probably tell me the difference here more than i can explain i just know that the di there's a huge difference between 1.5 degrees celsius warming over the entire planet and two degrees celsius uh warming over the entire planet what is that difference well I, yeah i'm glad you asked um it, it's all about the relative amount of destruction and suffering we're going to face there's a certain as you know ryan there's a certain amount of climate change already baked in based upon the the carbon emissions we've already released and the the positive feedback loops that come from those emissions so uh, there's at some point in, in some respects we're already past the possibilities that people had dreamed when we formed this organization called 350.org right it was to keep the the amount of carbon in the atmosphere below 350 parts per million it's now like over 400 i believe right so we're, we're, that was the goal then maybe a decade ago i can't remember exactly when that was formed with the recognition that if we get past 350 parts per million in the atmosphere, we're going to see a lot of suffering. And we've already seen some of that in terms of wildfires and hurricanes and more extreme weather events, right? Um, so that parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere relates directly to this average global increase in temperature. And of course, for the layperson trying to figure out what yeah what would 1.5 versus 2 degrees celsius what does celsius even mean to us does that mean that okay in louisville it's just a few degrees warmer in the winter who cares um but it's actually all about these global cycles like the planet is a living system with with all kinds of atmospheric and oceanic circulation systems that are impacted and disrupted by this 
adding of heat to the system, right? Uh, and so it is tough for even the scientists who dig into this every day, I'm not one of them, to say exactly what the difference between 1.5 and 2 is. But what the what the IPPC report stated was that uh, there is an increasing, like an sort of an exponential danger, if you want to think of it that way, of continuing to heat the atmosphere beyond 1.5. Things get even more extreme, too. And, and it sort of ratchets up as you go. So there's, it's tough for us to say exactly like in a specific place, what is the result of those differences? The point is we need to stop burning fossil fuels now. Right. And so are, are you finding that the corporations you're looking into are willing to make that kind of commitment? Right. So, yeah, uh, taking this back to Brown Foreman, you know, they, they are starting to, you know, you're seeing corporations point to specific commitments like 1.5, yeah. trying to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, which is great. And I think that's 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit, by the way. <laughs> yes, thank you. That, that, uh, <laughs> anyway, so... Um, that's nice to see. Um, you, when it comes to Brown Foreman, they're definitely thinking about both the inputs and the outputs. Okay. So the outputs are things like carbon emissions, right? And if you know, it is tough for for uh, you know, we know as a planet we have to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees. But you were the one who told me this the other one we talked the other week. How do you translate that into what a single company right. should do, right? Uh, or what a single person should do? Yeah. Um, Anyways, so they're thinking about reducing their carbon emissions. They have set various targets. Uh, they want to be net zero before 2050. But I think, and that was all really fascinating. But I think what was even more fascinating to me was some of the other sustainability uh, issues. And of course, you know, people tend to, to lump these two together and think that like reducing carbon emissions is the same as sustainability, mm. but reducing carbon emissions is really just like one part of sustainability. Right. right? <laughs> and I think that I'm sure you know that, of course, you know that very well. Uh, but what that means for Brown Foreman and let's talk bourbon. I, I like bourbon. I love, <laughs> I love living in Louisville. I love the bourbon culture here. Uh, Brown Foreman makes old Forester. They make Woodford reserve. They also own Jack Daniels. Um, and, um, to make bourbon, you need several things, several very important things. Um, of course you need the mash bill, which is like generally speaking, uh, barley, corn, and rye. Okay. And then you need, um, charred white oak barrels, uh, coming from, you know, white oak trees, uh, virgin too. Like you can't reuse them. Right. And that's like a law. Uh, well, I don't, I don't know if it's a law. I just know that that's like, that's the way it's supposed to be. That's yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, you need clean water. Uh, yeah. So you can't really make bourbon if you don't have clean water, if you don't have good agricultural practices, and you, or you don't have enough white oak. And the problem that the entire industry seems to be seeing, I saw this across major bourbon um, distillers in Kentucky, they're all seeing the same problems. And those problems are uh, we are not regenerating white oak as fast as we are using it. And that's actually not so much about uh, our, generally our consumption. There's something going on with forest uh, across North America where white oak naturally grow. And they're just generally, white oak trees are being shaded out by uh, 
competitive species and they're hot you know it takes a really long time for a sure. white oak tree to grow it takes like 50 to 70 years for yeah. them to mature and they're just being out competed by other species so we're we're consuming that we end up as a result of that consuming them faster than they regrow which means that if the bourbon industry wants to producing bourbon for generations to come it's got to figure something out and so brown foreman has joined like something like 17 states and a bunch of corporations um, as part of this white oak initiative to ensure that um, that there are forests for years to come and i think they have a goal that by 20 i'm i'm pretty sure it's that the, by 2025 they want to make sure that 50 percent of their white oak comes from sustainably managed forests Oh, okay, okay. So it's not like the industry ever went out and s said, we're going to do some advanced planting, planning and plant white oaks. They're just kind of relying on the what was already in the land, on the forest. And are they sourcing just from the U.S. or all around the world or... I believe that white oak generally comes from the U.S. Okay. We have a lot of that, in, especially in this area. Kentucky's known for it, but okay. this, uh, this part of the country. Uh, the rye, interestingly, I, I, as uh, Alex uh, mentioned that the rye, uh, a lot of that comes from Europe these days, but they actually have a are working with a couple dozen farmers here in Kentucky on testing out some new rye species. Uh, and the, the goal there is to improve regenerative agricultural practices prospects uh, they want to use it as an overwinter crop uh, which then protects the topsoil prevents erosion and it gives the, the farmers another uh, source of income i'm speaking today with ryan van velzer from wfpl he's their energy and environment reporter a fun collaboration today between community radio and public radio right here in louisville uh, he's been doing some excellent reporting on corporate responsibility in the age of climate change we're talking about bourbon and climate change today uh, we're also going to talk about pfas in a minute so stay tuned for that you can follow more of his work at wfpl.org and find him on the socials at ryan van velzer um so did in, in releasing their, their sustainability plan and the justifications for it, did they mention that climate change itself may threaten these very inputs for bourbon, like the white oak, like the rye? Uh, yeah, yeah, they they did. They, I mean, they, they certainly mentioned that, um, you know, agricultural practices are at risk under climate change. Uh, and, and they also mentioned it in particularly in water. They acknowledged that because of climate change, certain parts of the planet are going to become more arid. There's going yeah. to be more water scarcity. Um, of course, that impacts crops as well. Uh, they're particularly worried about, um, they grow some agave in Mexico for their tequila, and they grow some grapes in California for their wine. So they're thinking about water stewardship and protecting watersheds in those communities. Yeah. I wonder too about their sort of emphasis on resilience are, are they thinking about adaptability like maybe a globally warmed planet is a place where we can't produce some of these things in kentucky anymore and maybe the corporation needs to be ready to pivot to other products is that part of the conversation you know that's you know if that is part of the conversation, it's not part of the conversation that they're having with me. Yeah. Uh, that's a really interesting question, though. Yeah. I think that at some point, you know, corporations are are having to do that. You're seeing that right now. I mean, in Kentucky here, we had what a ten billion dollar investment in the Ford battery plant here yeah, in, here yeah, in yeah. Kentucky, and you see these giant car auto manufacturers making these huge investments in electric vehicles. I think uh, the 
the uh, investment here in Kentucky was the largest uh, manufacturing investment that Ford has ever made in the history of the company. Mm. And I mean, that's a huge pivot. And it's going to impact the questions related to our utility grid. So let's start talking about that a little bit. I know you're working on a story right now about LG&E and and KU's corporate responsibility. And the reason this has come up, of course, is that their long-range plans, known as Integrated Resource Plans, IRPs, are currently in front of the Public Service Commission, right? Um, And they're taking public comments on that. Uh, People can learn more at psc.ky.gov. You're going to need the case number. It's 2021-00393. And I know the story isn't out yet, so you can't go into any detail about that. Uh, but do you want to talk over in a sort of a broad sense about what you're starting to learn about these long-range plans from lg Right. Uh, so that integrated resource plan, that looks 15 years out. But, you know, let's say we could just talk about the electricity grid as a whole yeah, right yeah. now. I mean... Uh, it's all of these corporations that we've been talking about, you know, they all have plans to 100% to get, you know, their energy from 100% renewable sources, you know, and underlying all of this is utilities, utilities, if utilities don't become uh, 100% renewable, uh, then these corporations can't meet their own climate goals. I mean, and when you're talking about the electrifying of uh, vehicles across the country, uh, it doesn't mean anything if we don't have renewable energy (laughs) that is creating the energy for these electric vehicles. I mean, if we have coal-fired power plants powering all the vehicles across the country, we've just traded oil for coal. Right. Um, so underlying all of this is the, the need to entirely uh, reimagine our electric grids. And uh, Kentucky's an interesting place to do that. I was talking with somebody, um, a source the other week, and they said, you know, uh, if people want, you know, uh, to see changes happen in Kentucky, Cal- maybe California should be paying Kentucky to uh, switch from coal to uh, solar because <laughs> uh, because that would have a bigger impact than investments in California and renewable energy. Hmm. Right, 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 right. Because if we're doing it the dirtiest possible way, then stopping any of that as quickly as possible and in, in sw- making the transition to renewables faster it obviously could be a huge priority for a big win quick, right? Um, so lg e is starting, you, you, you started the show out mentioning about their plans to build a new uh, solar array, significant utility utility scale solar array that U of L is already part of the contract on. Uh, so they're moving in a direction and we could debate about whether it's fast enough, right? Uh, or whether it's ethical enough as we, as we started talking about land grabs and things like that. Uh, but it's more than just how the energy is sourced, right? There are issues about distributed energy generation and, and net metering too. Right. Um, and, LG&E has been well. First, let's. Will you maybe maybe you can give a better definition than I can quickly. Uh, what is net metering? <laughs> so net metering is basically allowing the the meter to go both ways. So when I produce energy on my home from any renewable source, let's say the solar panels on my roof, uh, that energy goes back into the grid. And during the day, right, and helps a source power renewably for the grid. It's a good public good, right? Then at night, when the sun's not shining, I'm taking energy back from the grid and the, and the meter runs the other way. The controversy has been, especially in Kentucky, has been about how folks are compensated for that. 
is the value of that electron <laughs> equal um, or does LG&E in some states uh, the utility would actually need to compensate the renewable producer more because they have a renewable energy portfolio standard like in Wisconsin right so if you're a renewable energy producer with the solar power on your roof uh, you can get more than the uti common utility rate uh, here in Kentucky the effort has been to go in the other direction of trying to undermine it and compensate those folks f the less um, so th I mean that controversy is still not settled right well, it is and it isn't. It, we, we saw some really big changes happen over the last year. Uh, essentially, uh, utilities wanted to compensate net metering customers at the wholesale rate that they would buy electricity for. And um, that's a, they were getting compensated. Uh, net metering customers are getting compensated at a much higher rate than that. And especially, uh, and that will continue to be the case for the people who've had solar panels on their uh, houses they for a long time. In, yeah. Right. Uh, but now for the new customers, um, those rates are changing. And basically, under um, laws that were passed a year or two back, uh, each utility goes before the Public Service Commission, those are utility regulators, and they try and set a rate for net metering customers. And, and what we've seen is that uh, the rates that have been set in, a, in the couple of cases that have come before the PSC is that the rates are pretty good for net metering customers. The problem was, you know, if if utilities got what they wanted in the, in in their cases and it was the wholesale value it would make it really hard for customers with solar panels on their homes to get a return on their investment um, right. and and so the rates not as good as the rate as they were getting but it's still better than what utilities want and um, it looks like the PSC is moving in the direction of of uh, protecting um, these rates for net metering customers. Uh, however, just recently, in the last few weeks, LG&E has sued uh, the Public Service Commission um, over the, the rate that they set uh, for oh. net metering customers in their service territories. Huh. It gets pretty into the weeds pretty fast. <laughs> pretty quick. <laughs> but basically, they're say, the P, they say that the PSC interpreted the law wrong. Ah, okay. Hmm. So, yeah, as I mentioned, it's not settled. And let me just make it clear to the listeners, too, that those of us who are getting grandfathered in under the old system, the situation wasn't perfect for us either. So basically, you get a one to one credit on your bill for every kilowatt hour of energy you, you send to the grid. You can take one kilowatt hour back out. But there was a cap. Right. So if I wanted to fully maximize my roof, right? Fill it up with solar panels, produce more energy than I need to consume. I would never see a dime for all that extra energy I send to the grid, right? So there was never any incentive for anybody, whether it's a homeowner or a business or anybody else, to put up more renewable energy than they, they personally needed, which is unfortunate, right? Because we should all be invested in tackling climate change. And one great investment we can make is, is purchasing the systems to make renewable energy. And when we do that, I think we increase the resiliency of the grid too. Distributed energy is great when the, when the grid goes down and it's all centralized, everybody's screwed. When, it, when there's power being produced all over the place, we have more resiliency for these times of, of, especially during times of crisis when part of the grid fails, right? So it helps make the grid more robust. And I think, I personally think it should be incentivized more. Yeah, I, you know, traditionally back, you know, when 
the transmission lines were first getting built. Yeah. It made sense uh, for these power companies to have what are called natural monopolies in these regions because it costs a lot of money for these power companies uh, to uh, build these transmission lines, especially out to these rural areas. So in return, governments... Um, like in Kentucky, granted monopolies to these power companies that said, okay, if you provide power to this entire territory, we'll give it to you in perpetuity, and you, you're the only people that can supply power to these customers. But things are different now. Uh, we, we supply, we create energy in different ways. Yep. And what I heard uh, uh, somebody was talking with uh, a few weeks ago uh, say was that it no longer really makes as much sense for power to come from one single place because of things like distributed energy. he And that, that source brought up that maybe it makes sense for transmission lines to be owned by one company right. because you don't want five different power lines coming into your house. Right, right. Um, so you need somebody who will maintain and improve transmission lines, but you, you, less and less we need s single sources of power. We actually, it's a, as you, as you said, it's more resilient to have distributed energy across a system. Yeah. yeah. Have, have you looked into any other kinds of changes that you think are necessary for the future of the electricity grid and, and what that might mean for Kentucky? Yeah. The essential problem that we're running into right now is that we have these investor-owned utilities like LG&E, and they have uh, a lot of coal-fired power plants, mm -hmm. and all of them are, you know, nobody's building any new coal power plants. That's pretty much done. Except China. <laughs> right. I'm sorry. In the United States. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. In the United States. But these, um, you know, they, it, these investor-owned utilities in particular, but any utility, any company, they want to get a return on their investment. There's something called a stranded asset, right? right. They don't want these coal-fired power plants to become stranded assets. They want to get all of the value out of them that they can because they invested a lot of money into these resources before they move on to the next resource. Yeah. So it's pretty clear that whatever gets built after these coal-fired power plants is going to be some combination of solar and wind and perhaps some single-cycle natural gas power plants. Uh, the question is, how fast is that change going to happen? And is that fast enough to avoid the worst impacts of climate change? Yeah. And is it fast enough to serve the needs, especially if we think about a rapid transition away from gas-powered vehicles and diesel-powered trucks to all electric powered uh where's all that electricity gonna come from my friends think about it <laughs> that's a lot of increase in demand uh and we're, we're barely you know a fraction of our current production is renewable energy so uh if that demand comes real quick i think the only option lg is going to have is just keep sucking more natural gas more natural gas that transition away from coal is great and really important it helps so much with the lo local air quality the particulate emissions are gone the sulfur the mercury that's so important uh, the destruction of our mountains, so important. But hey, natural gas is no no easy, uh, simple solution for all those problems because uh, it, the, we've seen the damage from fracking uh, and we've seen the, the carbon emissions that come along with uh, relying on taking carbon out of the ground and putting it in the atmosphere. That is the fundamental imbalance that makes our lives unsustainable. Yeah, uh, you know, but on, the, on that point and what is always, uh, you know, what I hear um, power company officials always bring it back to uh, and it you know it's a difficult it's a difficult problem that we have right now is the what's called the problem of intermittency uh, the yes. sun only shines during the day the wind blows best at night um, 
where fossil fuels, you can burn them whenever you want to, and you can have power whenever you want to. So it's always there when you need it. Right. Uh, whereas renewables, that problem still exists. Mm -hmm. uh, battery storage technology is what we need in this country to get to a point where uh, we can be uh, rely entirely on renewable energy. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I don't think we're at that point yet. I don't think there even you know LG&E is investing money in both carbon storage and in battery. Uh, battery storage technologies, uh, but it doesn't appear like that technology is where it needs to be uh, for for a company to or for power companies to rely 100% on renewable sources. What's happening in that space? What do you know about that? Yeah, I mean, there are there are rapid advancements in battery technology. My concern about them, though, is that they come with an environmental impact, too, right? So batteries rely on a lot of mining of heavy metals that is destructive in and of itself. And then there are toxins involved and there's questions about end of life. Uh, so there are big issues with energy storage that still need to be addressed with renewables. You're, you're absolutely right. And I think the fundamental problem is we just consume too much energy. <laughs> so figuring out how to build conservation and energy efficiency into the conversation is super vital. And so I was really sad when lg &E dropped all their energy conservation programs. But we're, we're, we're getting towards the end here. So I, I want to spend enough time to talk about PFAS. So let me quickly reintroduce you. I've got Ryan Van Velzer here in the studio with me on sustainability now he's wfpl's energy and environment reporter he's been doing great work on corporate responsibility in the age of climate change which you can find at wfpl but he's also been doing some great reporting this fall about pfas so if we could turn to these forever chemicals uh how did this come up as an issue for you to cover uh you know a few years ago i went to a a professional conference back when we used to have those in person. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> uh, for the Society for Environmental Journalists. It was in Flint, Michigan. And I sat in on a session about uh, PFOS chemicals, uh, perfluorinated perfluoral alkyl substances. Um, that is a family of, you know, thousands of different chemicals from they're in Teflon pans and coatings, waterproof coatings, um, firefighting foam, fast food wrappers, uh, carpets. I mean, it's in all I mean, it's in all kinds of products. Anyway, it turns You're breathing out breathing it now. <laughs> right. it's a, it turns out uh, it's it's not it's not great for you it's pretty bad for you uh, even in very small amounts uh, mostly what we know about is through ingestion but it could also be a problem through breathing anyway um, I learned about it from hearing about Rob Balot and uh, the attorney um, who's now kind of famous for for being portrayed by Mark Ruffalo in this movie Dark Waters uh, he was yeah. talking about what he he had gone through uh, in, in litigating these cases and that first turned my radar you know put it on my radar uh, but then I started reporting on it here more and more in Kentucky Kentucky's uh, Department for Environmental Protection has done some studies on this uh, a few years ago I think in 2018 they put out a study and they found it in like um, about half of the state's water systems. Wow. Uh, uh, now, they found it in very small amounts, largely in very small amounts uh, in the state's water systems. The EPA sets up Health, protective health standard of 70 parts per trillion. Uh, a lot of advocates say that that's far too high. Mm. Uh, but they were the levels that they were finding in the state were generally under, you know, like around or underneath 15 or 10 parts per trillion for these different chemicals. Um, and then more recently, uh, the state put out a second study that found that 90% of the state's surface waters have some level of 
PFOS wow, chemicals. Wow, 90%. Wow. And when you said 50% of the uh, drinking uh, uh, water systems, you're talking about drinking water. There's stuff coming out of our tap. And so half of the drinking water systems in the state have some amount of PFOS already. Yeah. Do you know if that's true here in Louisville? Uh, yeah, well, I remember uh, a, a few years ago, um, and I have stories about this up on WFPL.org. You can Google, uh, you know, Louisville PFOS, Louisville Water Company, PFOS, WFPL. It'll come up. I think the uh, the highest amount that – now, uh, Louisville Water Company, they look for this kind of thing. And yeah. it's a big problem along the Ohio River in general. Mm. So they're monitoring for this. Uh, but the last um, – the highest level I saw, I think for a certain chemical called Gen X, um, it was in Louisville's drinking. They found a sample in Louisville's drinking water at 13 parts per trillion, uh, but they found some other chemicals at lower levels than that. And it was never it never reached anywhere near the EPA's health protective standards. Well, and and we're bringing up one of the challenges here, which that there are thousands of these PFOS forever chemicals. They're found in so many different things and they come in so many different forms. And we have not even fully studied all of these chemicals, potential impacts on human health, on environmental health. We also, it, it's creating a toxic stew, right? It's a cocktail. And we don't know what the, those multiple effects might be when they're combined, right? Uh, but I think an important concept to, to, to bring across to the listeners here today is about this concept of bioaccumulation, right? And that's what happens with PFAS. It's what happens with mercury, which is why it was so important to get off coal for, for our, our health reasons. Uh, we, we heard about, you know, mercury building up in fish. The same thing is true with PFAS chemicals, right? Yeah, so PFAS chemicals are essentially... Um, the strongest, made from the strongest bonds in organic chemistry. It's a carbon-fluorine bond, um, and which means that they just are extremely persistent in both the environment and in our bodies. They just don't break down. So when you have a spill of these chemicals, it's not going away. It's just yeah. going to be there for yeah. forever, and it might change uh, you know, locations, right. uh, be that uh, in the water or in the tissue of fish, but it's going to be there. And and you said that the, there's more issues about ingestion rather than breathing. And in part, that's because of the relative concentration of these chemicals. If I'm ingesting fish or animal flesh or, I don't know, maybe it's in vegetables too, right? <laughs> in my food, that, that where the where the chemicals can bioaccumulate, I'm getting a bigger hit. It can be in vegetables, actually. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Uh, it can land on, it can be on either on top of it, but it can also actually grow in, you know, into, from my, my understanding anyway, is that it cannot like the roots can, can uptake it. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. So I, uh, I got some tips that I started following up on about Henderson, Kentucky yeah. and a PFOS recycling plant in, uh, in Henderson, Kentucky, they recycle PTFE, which is also known as uh, Teflon. Um, they take those materials and they use them to make printing inks and coatings. Oh, it's really? A, huh. Yeah. It's a company called Shamrock Technologies. And huh. it turns out that, you know, back in 2018, they self-reported to the state that they had extremely high levels of PFOS in the groundwater underneath uh, the their site. Uh, to put it in context, I told you before that 70 parts per trillion is the health standard for drinking water. There was 345 million parts per trillion in there. Uh, what? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and what? Yeah. Basically, they'd been they had these tanks that had been collecting um, some wastewater byproducts 
uh, and they had been dumping these tanks uh, oh, in front no. of their facility into a ditch intermittently, and it had spoiled the groundwater in the area. Wow! But it was also coming out of their stacks, and they had three. They have three sites in Henderson, Kentucky. It was coming out of their their stacks as well. And so, the more studies they did, the more they found it. And they found it in nearly every sample oh uh, that they that they looked at. They found it on rooftops, tree canopies, and surface soils, and surface waters, and groundwater. I mean, e everywhere around these sites. And did they have a permit for this dumping and emission and and out of the smokestacks too? Here's the most important part of all of this: uh, is that there's no state or federal laws regarding PFAS. Pethos. Uh, there's, there's big conversation. A lot of conversations happening in Washington right now about regulating PFOS, and the Biden administration is interested in regulating PFOS. But currently, there are no state or federal laws regulating this. And I should just say that you know some of the the long-term health effects of this are, uh, you know, kidney damage, liver damage, uh, different kinds of cancers, ultracolitis. Uh, all really bad, bad health issues uh, related to this stuff, and yet there's no regulations on it. Wow. Uh, and, and in wow. terms of the permitting, the, you know, um, they had some permits. They didn't have other permits. There were some in, in some situations. Um, in one situation, um, even after all this pollution came out and the state knew about it, uh, they actually ended up permitting them to uh, pollute the same creek that they had really? uh, polluted beforehand. Yeah. Wow. So no action is being taken against Shamrock. Uh, well, that not that's not the case. I mean, the state is is working with them. They have an agreed order uh, with the company. They're working with the company. Uh, the company has denied liability, but has taken a number of steps to uh, to mitigate the worst harm. Uh, those those storage tanks that I was talking about that they were dumping into uh, offsite, uh, or rather, I'm sorry, dumping into the ground. Um, they've removed those. They've taken several other steps to try and reduce uh, the their PFOS impacts on the community. However, the vast majority of the pollution that's already been emitted is still there because they have wow. not started. It's been three years since they uh, first reported it to the state, and uh, the pollution is still there. And the residents... Do they even know about it? Is the state talking to the residents or just the company? The state never told the residents. The city never told the residents. The company never told the residents until WFPL News started reporting on it. They now have a, uh, a work group. Uh, the city has a working group um, that's bringing in different officials uh, to talk about it, to look into the issue, to explain to the public what's going on. And uh, you're finally seeing some movement on it which is why independent public journalism is so important, my friends, a reason enough to support it. Uh, thank you for thank you for doing that work and raising that uh, red flag there. Uh, we're nearing the end of our time, but one thing that you mentioned in your, your article from October 25th called Reports, Report Finds Forever Chemicals in 90% of Kentucky Waterways, and again, folks can read this at WFPL.org, you said the studies have even found that PFAS chemicals reduce the effectiveness of vaccines. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> That's a uh, stunning fact for our times. Yes. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not super familiar with the science behind that, but I have uh, heard that. I've talked to several experts who have reiterated that to me, and there's been uh, a, two or three studies on it. 
Okay. Well, and the other piece of news that's important about this, and I guess it's a let's end on this little bright spot, is that the Biden administration has recently rolled out a roadmap uh, for regulations, what they could look like to regulate PFAS, and you can find those at EPA.gov. Are you hopeful about that? I am. Um, This is finally getting some real traction. There are things that are finally happening at the federal level. And I think that before the Biden administration, at the end of this term, we're going to see some action uh, from the EPA on PFAS. All right. We can keep our fingers crossed and hope this is a really important issue that is finally getting some attention in the media. And and certainly thanks to Ryan Van Velzer, who's been my guest today. Uh, Again, I want to thank you for all the great work you do covering the transition away from fossil fuels here in in Kentucky and other environmental concerns for WFPL. Uh, I think you do really great work. And and I I always love getting to sit down with you. Thank you so much. I love uh, getting to talk with you and you do great work. Great work as (laughs) well. So thank you very much, Justin. It's a love fest here in the studio at Forward Radio. All right. Stay tuned, my friends. Coming up in just a minute, your community action calendar with all kinds of ideas about how you can get engaged in sustainability this week. So stay tuned, my friends. Just a little bit of love. 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 No me cierre la puerta. No me cierre la puerta de tu corazón. No me cierre la puerta. here on Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mogg. And before you sharpen your pencils and get your calendars out this week, I just want to take a moment of silence, my friends, to recognize all of the victims of the global climate crisis, the latest victims in western Kentucky and our surrounding neighboring states, suffering from the devastation that is inevitable when we continue to burn fossil fuels and add heat to our atmosphere. We are going to see more destruction like this. We're going to have more suffering if we don't all take action now to get immediately off of fossil fuels and transition away from our destructive lifestyles. So a moment of silence for all the victims of the tornadoes in Western Kentucky. Thank you. And now, This is your week to take action for sustainability, so get your pencils sharpened and your calendars out, friends. There's a lot to do this week. 
First of all, let's show up for racial justice with the monthly meeting taking place this Tuesday, December 14th on Zoom of the Louisville Showing Up for Racial Justice group. From 7 to 7.30, there'll be a welcome for all newcomers. This is great for new folks or anybody who wants to learn more about L Surge. And then from 7.30 to 8.30 is when they'll be sharing actions and events that you can get involved in this month, this week even. Feel free to join at either 7 or 7.30. You can register for this virtual Tuesday 7 or 7.30 p.m. event at bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y slash L-Surge, L-S-U-R-J meeting bit.ly slash meeting. Of course, Surge is a national network of groups and individuals organizing white people for racial justice through community organizing, mobilizing, and education. Surge moves white people to act as part of a multiracial majority for justice with passion and accountability. They work to connect people across the country while supporting and collaborating with local and national racial justice organizing efforts. Surge provides a space to build relationships, skills, and political analysis to act for change. You can learn more about our local L Surge chapter at louisvillesurj.org. And you can come on out on Zoom this Tuesday evening at 7 for newcomers or 7.30 for everybody. Also coming up this week on the 15th, there's a bunch of great events on Wednesday, December 15th. It's a long time coming, my friends. And finally, there'll be a Beachmont Orchard Planting at the Orchards of Beachmont, located at 4501 South 3rd Street, across from Thornton's Gas Station. It's just south of the Waterson Expressway on 3rd Street. Community members have been organizing. Folks like me have been donating for so many years now to try and get this community orchard in the ground. And they are looking for volunteers to help out or just come and celebrate on Wednesday, December 15th from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. You can help them plant a peach tree, a pear tree, apple tree, and a jujube tree. There's a whole bunch of trees getting in the ground. Or just stop by to celebrate again. 4501 South 3rd Street in the vacant area across from Thornton's just south of the Waterson on 3rd Street on Wednesday from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. Also coming up on Wednesday the 15th from 3 to 6.30 p.m., there is a special exhibit at Studio Louisville, a new pop-up urban design studio all about the Preston Corridor and how we could re-envision it. It's in the Republic Building on the second floor. That's located at 429 West Muhammad Ali Boulevard. And the participants are the University of Kentucky School of Architecture, School of Interiors, Department of Landscape Architecture, and Department of Geography. Studio Louisville is a collaborative design studio at the University of Kentucky that treats design as a lever for promoting a healthier and more just future for Louisville and Jefferson. County. In fall of this year, a multidisciplinary group of graduate and undergraduate students from architecture, interiors, landscape, architecture, geography, and urban design worked with a team of professional planners and consultants to analyze the diverse spatial qualities of the Preston Corridor and propose a series of multi-scalar design interventions that align with the priorities of stakeholder groups represented in various planning documents. Focusing on issues of social equity, healthy environments, and climate justice, the exhibition assembles the student research and design work and invites visitors to engage in conversation about the possibilities for our Preston Corridor. You can get more information about this at 
the Urban Design Studios website. That's udstudio.org. And again, the opening reception for this exhibit is on Wednesday the 15th from 3 to 6.30 p.m. in the Republic Building at 429 West Muhammad Ali Boulevard. Just head on up to the second floor. And I'm hoping to interview these folks uh, just before the exhibit and get them on next week's show. So stay tuned to Sustainability Now next week for more about the Preston Corridor plans. Also on Wednesday the 15th at 6 p.m., it's our monthly green drinks. And the the theme or the special guest this week is called Virtual Peaker. The Louisville Sustainability Council's Green Drinks is a casual networking opportunity for students and professionals across many sectors to come together to connect and discuss sustainable initiatives in our community. Each month features a different speaker or organization. And this month, they will be highlighting the work of Virtual Peaker, a local company which offers the only adaptable self-service energy management platform designed to turn any utility into one that is modern, customer-centric, and decentralized. Virtual Peaker allows customers to optimize the benefits of distributed energy resources, like those solar panels you can put on your roof, and their impact on the grid. Learn more at virtual-peaker.com, P-E-A-K-E-R.com. And you can learn more about Green Drinks, which takes place on the third Wednesday of every month at 6 p.m. virtually until the pandemic lifts at LouisvilleSustainabilityCouncil.org or find them on Facebook, facebook.com slash Green Drinks Louisville. And that's where you can go to get the link to register for the 6 p.m. Wednesday Green Drinks with Virtual Peaker. Also on Wednesday at 6 p.m. on Zoom, you're going to have to choose. Bernheim Forest is offering an amazing program called Recolor the Outdoors. You can join Cordless Outley with Clemson University and the director of Bernheim's Children at Play Network Initiative, Claude Stevens, as they discuss trends in the U.S. over the last 50 years that have led to an apparent significant decline in the time that children spend in free play outdoors in general and an even greater decline in time spent at free play in wild areas such as woods, deserts, grasslands, and other natural or semi-natural landscapes. These numbers, of course, are even greater for black children. Yet very little understanding of the factors that have led to this decline, the unequal distribution of nature in America, the historically unjust experiences that black people have endured in the outdoors, nor the exclusion of black people from the conservation movement are discussed. By focusing on serving the needs of the black community and ensuring the inclusion of black voices, we can reclaim this culturally rich connection and ensure the safe enjoyment of the outdoors for generations. Dr. Corliss Outley is a professor and director of the Race, Ethnicity, Youth, and Social Equity Collaboratory at Clemson. Her research examines positive youth development outcomes during the out-of-school time hours, particularly focusing on racial and ethnic identity and cultural behaviors, health disparities, social justice, and built and physical environmental influences. She considers herself a community-engaged scholar that focuses on improving socio-political systems and environments to reduce inequities through the application of strength-based empowerment approaches to youth engagement. 
She also attests that it is only from working side by side with communities that we as scholars will learn about their assets as well as needs in order to get for these citizens to no longer be considered underserved. But where they are fully represented and active participants in the social, environmental, economic, and educational institutions. You can learn more about Recolor the Outdoors and register for this Wednesday 6 p.m. offering on Zoom at bernheim.org. That's B-E-R-N-H-E-I-M dot org. And also Wednesday, December 15th is the deadline to apply for Interfaith Power and Light's Cool Congregation Challenge. I mentioned it last week. If you're part of a religious congregation that's taken steps to be a good steward of the earth, Wednesday is the deadline to submit your congregation's actions to Interfaith Power and Light's Cool Congregations Challenge for the chance to win $1,000 for your congregation. And you can learn more about all the different categories and what you need to do to submit at Cool Congregations congregations.org. Now, coming up this weekend on Saturday, December 18th, there's a couple great events taking place at the Louisville Nature Center, located at 3745 Illinois Ave. First at 10 a.m., there's a program called Oh Deer. <laughs> Deer camouflage well in the barren winter landscape, but they can be easy to spot with a trained eye. Jacob will guide you through the forest lurking for tracks, scat, rubbings, and other signs of deer. This is a kid-friendly program. Children ages 3 to 12 are $5 and accompanying a Adults are free. Limit two children, two adults per child. Located in the center of Louisville and adjacent to the Beargrass Creek State Nature Preserve, the Louisville Nature Center offers nature and sustainability education as well as an urban wilderness experience. The unique urban forest includes two miles of hiking trails through the 41-acre Beargrass Creek State Nature Preserve and 30 acres of surrounding forest. So you can come out and check it out for the Odeer program on Saturday at 10 a.m. or if you prefer a night hike at on Saturday the 18th, they'll be out at the Nature Center from 5 to 7 p.m. Who's that in the forest? Beargrass Creek Nature Preserve is home to eastern screech owls, barred owls, and great horned owls. And December is a perfect time of year to spot owls' courting and mating behaviors. Join Rosemary on this night hike to catch a glimpse of owls and other nocturnal animals. You can learn more and register for the night hike at louisvillenaturecenter.org. And lastly, I want to let you know it's time to register for the Tuesday, December 21st, 7 p.m. Greater Louisville Sierra Club Annual Winter Solstice Celebration. It will be online. Forward Radio's community partner, the Greater Louisville Sierra Club, will host their traditional winter solstice celebration virtually this year. Normally, it's a potluck meal with entrees and beverages. However, they hope you will join them remotely with your favorite food and beverage for a relaxing program where we share and reflect on this year's successes and challenges. Participants will enjoy music from John Gage and hear from and acknowledge special guests, including supportive local elected officials. You're invited to join as the Sierra Club ends the year with friends, renewing their commitment to explore, enjoy, and protect the environment. You can find the link to join at sierraclub.org slash greater Louisville group. And that is all the time we have for today here on Sustainability Now. I thank you so much for tuning in, and I look forward to being back in your ears again in one week's time, my friends. Be well. Oh, yes, eh. Eva,